We have these little thin plastic thermometer covers at work that are meant to keep your thermometers clean because, you know, rectal thermometers. But every time I see someone using one, it makes me think of a little thermometer condom. But that's not the mental picture that makes me hate them. I cannot help but imagine one of these floating in the ocean. In my mind's eye, I can see it from below, backlit by a beautiful blue sky. And then I imagine a turtle coming up beside me and swallowing it. So I won't use them. But I don't take up the fight with management, even though I should. But if I think about that fight, then I start thinking about all the plastic waste that we produce and the megaliters of water and detergent that we burn through every day to wash those pissy blankets and the reams of paper we print and sign and file and then chuck and the aircon that hums 24-7 to keep the server cool and the lights that are never off and, and, and. So I do nothing because I feel paralyzed. And I suspect that's how many of us feel when it comes to global environmental issues. We don't know where to begin, so we don't begin. Which is why I love what the team at Vets for Climate Action are doing by niching down the problem to my profession and to what I can do, what you can do. We've had team members from VFCA on the podcast before, but in round three, Dr. Jeremy Watson, the chair of Vets for Climate Action's Climate Care Program, talks to us about that very specific problem that I mentioned at the beginning. What we do as vet businesses that exacerbates climate damage and what we can do about it. In addition to his role at Vets for Climate Action, Dr. Jeremy Watson is a veterinarian and a practice owner. His desire to do something about climate change was put into action in 2011 when a practice rebuild started his own journey to creating a vet business with environmental sustainability as one of its core values and that eventually led them to becoming a certified net zero business. In this conversation, Jeremy talks us through what that experience looked like, what he learned from it, and the surprising things that he discovered that vet practices do that has an outsized effect on climate damage. Basically, the levers that we can pull that will have the biggest impact in the right direction. And of course, we talk solutions. Jeremy introduces us to the Vets for Climate Action's Climate Care Program, a program that aims to overcome exactly that paralysis of, I know it's a problem, but I don't know where to start with a structured, systematic approach that handholds clinics through the entire process. He talks us through what that process looks like, what the most common stumbling blocks are, and what the wins are beyond that it's simply the right thing to do, including wins in team culture, and of course, direct financial gains. Please enjoy Dr. Jeremy Watson. And please, do something. Dr. Jeremy Watson, welcome to the Vetvelt Podcast. Thanks, you. Very pleased to be here. Uh, we've just been chatting off air about your your career journey so far and your future career journey and, and all the plans. But uh, I really want to dig into the part of your life that has become the sustainability and the environmental impact and what's happening to Earth, really, and how what we're going to do about it. Yeah, look, obviously, it's a, a global issue, and everyone is is concerned about it and doing something about it to some degree or other. Um, and I guess from a veterinary point of view, it's uh, it's probably the biggest threat to animal health that we're going to face over the coming generations. And so I guess we've got a, uh, an opportunity and a responsibility to start looking into it and to, do, and to see what we can do for, you know, for the future of animal health, really. So before we dig into the meat of that, oh, can we start with bad decisions, good stories? 
I warned you about this one and I'll give you the background how this, this question was born. I was driving along the freeway back in Perth one day and it was graffiti on the side of the wall that said, bad decisions lead to good stories, which immediately made me wonder about that statement. So what do you think about that? True or false? Or, and do you have any examples for us? Yeah, look, I don't know that I necessarily entirely agree with it. I guess you make decisions at the time because that's who you are with the information you have. And, and I guess, you know, you are who you are. And I think I'd perhaps like to uh, rephrase that and saying that, that perhaps taking a risk and failing is something that perhaps you can learn more from. And, and perhaps le- that's where it leads to a good story, I think, is probably how I'd like to reset that. A lesson learned rather than just a good story. Yeah. A, a good lesson learned makes for a good story for sure. Yeah. And I think sort of that they talk about being comfort, comfortable outside your comfort zone. So being able to take a risk and, and it doesn't always come, come off, but you, you learn something from it. I think when you, when things don't go well, mm. so if you can catch that risk as a, as a bad, that risk, risk-making decision as a, as a bad decision. Yeah. Then it fits your, your line that you've put out to us. Yeah. When you're talking there about you make decisions at the time with the information available to you. Obviously, my head is in climate change for this conversation, which makes me think of what we did as a species. Bad decisions, some very, very bad decisions that at the time we didn't know was a bad decision. I wouldn't say it's a good story. It's actually a terrible story, but it's it's certainly the story that we're talking about today. Yeah, look, I think, um, well, I mean, the, the whole sort of global um, issue with climate change and the buildup of carbon emissions, and it goes back to the, the, the start of the Industrial Revolution, really, and uh, they were good decisions at the time because they, 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 obviously the, the use of fossil fuels to make energy and improve lifestyles has, has been a huge benefit to society over the years. The trouble is, that, of course, that the emissions are quietly building up over time, uh, and then now we're having to deal with the consequences of that. And... You know, the whole sort of wicked problem, of, I think, of, with climate change is that most people don't really make significant changes in their behaviour until they're directly impacted by the consequences of that behaviour. But the trouble with climate change is by the time we're all significantly impacted on a day-to-day basis, we're so far down the track and it's irreversible. And we're trying to deal with a sort of, a, for most of us, a mental concept at the moment, which is gradually becoming more and more real. Uh, and have to make significant behaviour changes. And unfortunately, the huge change required in, in society to deal with this is is easily exploited by short-term politicians, really, unfortunately. so. And it's such human nature. That's my biggest concern about this whole issue because I'm, I'm 100% in on the science. I believe it. I believe that it's happening and then we need to act. And then personally, I'll, I'll do something tomorrow. Because as you say, the consequences aren't, they're not in your face. And we are such a short-sighted species and and I'm guilty of it myself. Like I was trying to think in preparing for this, I was trying to think of metaphors and comparisons and why are we resistant to doing things? It's because it's change is hard and we're comfortable with what we're doing. And it's just, you've got to do it. It's one of those on my to-do list for one day stuff that I need to do. I need to act on climate change. It's a bit like I'm currently getting stuff together for my tax return. I've got to do it, but I don't want to do it. Uh, I've got a hundred things I'd rather do, but the difference is I know that if I don't do my tax return, I'm going to be in trouble by this date. I'm going to get a fine. And if I don't pay that fine, I'm going to end up in prison. Whereas with climate change, it still feels, yeah, it's coming sometime. 
<laughs> I don't know when. <laughs> How do we deal with that mindset? Is that is that a mindset with, that you ever struggled with, Jeremy? Yeah, look, I think when you look at the sociology of of climate change and the, and the spectrum of, of responses in the community, you've roughly got maybe a quarter of the population at one end of the spectrum who are actively engaged and doing something about it. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got maybe 20, 10 or 20% of people who who actively ignoring or actively denying it. And there's a whole lot of reasons for that, a lot of social and political reasons, doesn't suit their beliefs, whatever. And then I think you've got a large group like yourself in the middle, particularly people like us, especially we've got scientific training, we get the, the graphs and the science and the, the big equilibrium reaction that's going on out there in the atmosphere. I guess this big group and the chunk in the middle know it's a problem, know something needs to be done about it, but are just not sure what to do or they're just too busy at the moment or get yeah. up, get around later, those sorts of things. So there's a huge opportunity there, I think, to make a pathway for those people to take the next step and start start dealing with this issue. So that's where I think the, the real big opportunity is in trying to really shift the dial on, on dealing with climate change, really. And it's that pathway that we want to talk about today, specifically your, your involvement in Vets for Climate Action and the Climate Care Program for vet hospitals. It's an audience of vets here, so we have veterinarians, vet nurses, and potentially practice owners who I'm betting if you show them or if you, and you tell me your experience because you're getting out there speaking to practice owners, but I'm almost certain that when you speak to people, they go, damn it, that's a great idea. Yes, we sign up, but this week I have to deal with a staff issue. I've got 10 surgeries booked. This is due the a million things. You're a practice owner. You went through this process. There's always something that feels more urgent than doing this thing is one of those important but not urgent issues that they talk about that you, that you need to plan for. For, for yourself, so Jeremy, because you, you went through the process, or question actually, did you go through the process of getting your practice to net zero external to the climate care program? Was that off your own back? You did it and figured out how your, your own pathway for yourself to get your clinic to, to net zero? Yeah, look, it's kind of, mix of a mix of my involvement with Betsy Climate Action, um, but it was done independently of of their resources, but just a little bit of context. So with our practice, and I've always had an interest in, in particularly in sustainable architecture and, you know, we renovated our house in about 2006 and we did used an architect who specializes in that kind of sustainability features for, for architecture. And it gave us a whole lot of benefits at home. And so in 2011, we had the opportunity to rebuild our clinic. And so I reconnected with the architect and having an interest in, in design myself, we were able to collaborate and build a fabulous clinic that had a whole lot of sustainable design features. And that was 2011. And we started to see the benefits for the team, you know, the natural light, the, the stable temperature, the, the continual. So we use special um, heat exchange units in the ventilation. So we have fresh air coming in all the time without losing any of the heating in winter or the cooling in summer, for example. And so it doesn't smell like a vet clinic. So we're seeing all the benefits of this. And then we started putting on some solar panels and some more solar panels. Uh, and then we covered the entire roof in solar panels. And all of a sudden we, we discovered, well, actually we're producing more power in a year than what we use. Uh, and, and solar panels are great for vet clinics because you use your power in the daytime. So I thought, you know, we must be carbon neutral. And then I thought, oh, maybe I'll look into this a little bit more. And and also as a time I'd, I'd connected on the Vets for Climate Action and a and a group of other really enthusiastic and talented um, vets and vet professionals who were developing the climate care program. And I thought, you know, what is it to become 
um, carbon neutral what's required and through some other connections I had connected up with an auditing company and we went through the process. And so it was as much as anything was to find out what's involved rather than specifically wanting to be carbon neutral. Uh, really it was a fact finding mission to start because there were no other practices in Australia that had done it that I knew, although I've since discovered a couple who've gone through the process you know, quite some time ago, but haven't gone through a registration, official registration like we have. All right. So your why for doing this, it was almost like a, a gradual thing. It started more out of a, a love for design and curiosity. And you obviously knew it was an issue or, or was there a particular thing that moved you to do this to, to go? Because I, again, I, th I think for a lot of practice owners and veterinarians, the, there's this, yes, I should do it, but you need that, you need that push to say, okay, just do it. It's the, it's commitment of time and energy for you. What pushed you? Was it just the, well, I wanted to design a cool clinic or. A little bit of that, but look, the whole climate issue has been irking me for, well, since, since the last 30 years, really, it's been really come on the radar. And so we've started to make personal decisions to try and be more sustainable. And so it's something that I've always wanted to progress in my life. And it's been particularly frustrating through the last 10 years of conservative government we've had in Australia, who've really just been not interested in, in progressing the, to the than dealing with climate change. And so the solution to that really is to develop your own strategies within your own networks and keep working on that and let the political cycles roll around. And I guess part of the thing we're trying to do with Vets for Climate Action is use vets' connection with the wider public and 60 or 70% of the public own pets or have connection with animals is to normalise our actions on dealing with climate change in a net zero strategy and then encouraging our clients to say, look, this is an important animal health issue. You need to get on board and support us in what we're doing. And so that ultimately you're building a large base, which will support the politicians to then deliver better policies. And the politicians will, if, if there's enough widespread support, it's, it's social, it's political, it's scientific, all of those. I love the, I love the mix of all this and business as well and trying to find a way forward. That's what I'm really um, interested in. So it's a push for culture change, really. For national for local and then national and then global culture change and I, I love learning and listening to stuff about culture just specifically business culture and stuff like that and i'm, I'm a big fan i often talk about it but seth godin he has a his definition of culture is people like us do things like this and his theory is that culture has changed from the bottom up usually so usually not the leadership in the clinic who well, they can set the tone for the culture but you but but as a as a team member or something like that, by your actions, you can influence the culture around you until it becomes the new norm. People like us do things like this. So is what we're trying to do with Vets for Climate Action, a case of as a group, as veterinarians, as let's say respected people in society, we hope mostly saying we are doing it like this. And then all the people we interact with to make it, as you said, to make it normal to say, okay, net zero efficiencies. This is what we should do as a society. And then hopefully as we spread that, that it pushes up towards the politics rather than us waiting for the politicians to say, all right, electric cars only or building restrictions to go, actually, no, we expect you to change the laws. Is that right? Is that a, a fair assessment of what we're trying to do? Yeah, look, there's a lot of moving parts to that, but certainly the base, what we're already called base building uh, is what we're trying to achieve. So normalizing the net zero or, or, or sustainability profile of your practice. Hey, and the vets are one of the most, you know, when they do surveys of professions, vets are 
very highly as a as a trusted professional within the community. And so, yeah, if my vet's doing it, hey, yeah, maybe I should think about this carbon positive pet food that he's recommended or this this range of carbon neutral lantern collars or uh, those sorts of things. So when we, we did a, a survey of our clients for hospital visits and it's just a survey monkey with five questions and we had, we did it just over a couple of months and we added a question on with, with we, I think the question was something like we've become carbon neutral for the future, a better future for animal health. How much do you value this? And 16 out of 23 rated it four or five out of five. So I think that, that there's quite um, approval of what we're doing. It's not so, so active as well. So yeah. Um, uh, and it's just back there on, now you talk about government intervention. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of moving parts to the whole dealing with climate change. It's such a global and uh, intersects with everything we do in the communities. Government regulation is a really powerful tool if we can get it implemented. And there's a um, there's a thing called the in policy in government policy development they call the Overton window. Have you heard of the Overton window? <laughs> Basically, it's it's where an idea starts out as ridiculous to then becomes radical, then becomes kind of um, a bit weird to nor to normal to becoming acceptable becoming policy sort of thing. And, and so this window shifts on ideas as they become more and more popular. And so the politicians, and, and, and my son worked in a um, uh, in one of the federal government departments in policy development, and I asked him about it and said, oh, yeah, we use that all the time. We'll dust off an old idea. There's a change again. We'll pull it out. We'll see where that sits in the open window now. And so what we're trying to do is get net zero and sustainability shifted into the Overton window such that it just becomes normal. Yeah. Okay. Can I ask you about about your process? It's been a while now, but your process for, for your practice, because I think this will be of interest to a lot of vets listening. You talk about the sort of unexpected wins of the redesign of the practice. So you said clean air and things like that. Were, were there things, were there repercussions of moving towards carbon neutral that you didn't even envisage as an advantage, but that became a, a win for the practice or for the team specifically? Yeah, I think that's more, so I knew we had all the physical wins with the, with the, with the, the great natural light in winter, which is great for people's mental health to be an operating theater is like a sunroom in winter and it's bathed in warm natural light. So you can quietly just spend half an hour and stretch out a spay whilst standing in the sun. And, and so that's good for, for people's mental health, but the process of becoming carbon neutral really looks at all of the activities of the business and anything that's likely to produce emissions. Probably the big learning moment out of all of that has been the impact of anaesthetic gases, really. And so anaesthetic gases are about 7% of our carbon footprint. So particularly isoflurane is a very potent greenhouse gas and nitrous is also extremely potent. Uh, and we're just venting it out of the atmosphere. So it's pretty much like getting refrigeration gas and squirting it out in the atmosphere every day. Um, you know, if, if people want to want to calculate the amount of emissions from their um, from an anaesthetic, there's a, an excellent app you can get from Yale University called Gassing Greener and download that onto your phone and you put in your flow rate and your isofluorane percentage and the weight of the patient and then it tells you how many, how many kilograms of CO2 that's released uh, and what equivalent to driving how many miles in a car and that sort of thing. So it makes that kind of neat comparison. But I guess it, it's been a big awareness. And 
Go wait, wait. I've got, I've got to interrupt you. So give us a, put it in just as an example. Let's say an average, ten kilogram, one hour surgery. How far am I driving my yeah, my ram truck down the highway? <laughs> as it comes yeah, back, that might be twenty or thirty k's. Really? Uh, I'd have to, I'd have to look it up. It's quite significant. It's significant. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, I interrupted but, you. I was just fascinated. That's that's interesting. Yeah. So, um, so and so just on uh, um, the anesthetic gases. So we've done a kind of systems review. So maybe I'll backtrack a little bit. Yeah. Sorry. Part, of, part of the registration with Climate Active, which is who we're registered with, which is currently the most, as I understand it, the most rigorous carbon registry in Australia. And part of that is you have to also submit an admissions reduction plan uh, for the next 10 years. So this kind of aligns with our national goals of of uh, 45% reduction by 2030. Um, and, and that also then aligns, going down a rabbit burrow here, but there's the Science-Based Target Initiative, which is the internationally recognised target setting for emissions reduction. So any particularly corporate organisation that has to embark on a credible emissions reduction needs to be guided by their guidelines as to what they're actually doing. Is it actually a meaningful reduction? And so that means having a a 2050 target, ideally net zero, and then a 2030 target. Well, typically it's five to 10 years. So it's 2030 at the moment, but you're now starting to hear in the media are at 2035 targets because you, you, 2030 is coming to us and it's no longer a 10-year target. Uh, so that kind of thing is, is happening. But if you don't have a midterm target, you can't get to 2049. So we're going to get stuck into this and, and realize that you've got no chance. So yeah, so so you need to, to with Climate Active, set an emissions reduction plan and You've got your scope one, scope two, scope three emissions. So your emissions are, are broken up into scope one, two, and three. Scope one is emissions that are pr produced on site. So direct emissions, so like burning gas in a heater, practice vehicles uh, used and owned in the practice. And the other big one for us is anesthetic gases. Um, so in our practice, we got rid of all our gas appliances and swapped over to new generation high efficiency electric appliances saved money uh, we can run it off our solar panels so that was an obvious one to do and then scope two is your grid purchases of electricity and so depending on where, where you are that will be a very according to how much fossil fuels used in your power generation so somewhere like new zealand which has a lot of uh, hydro their scope two are going to be quite low in victoria we still have a lot of uh, coal-fired power stations so consequence higher and then scope three is basically Anything else your business does that that generates an emission, so employee commute, travel to conferences, fuel used in delivery of supplies, that sort of thing. So scope three is where all the difficulty is, but scope one and two is where the opportunities are because you have direct control over them. And so, so back to the anaesthetic gases. You said anaesthetic gas counts as scope one. That's in that correct. category. How, how do you deal with that? Because again, I, I, as a, I'm imagining I'm not a practice owner at the moment, but if I was, I'd admit it to go. Oh, well, what can I do about that? Because I need, I need anesthetic gas. Can you improve that? So the process of looking into anesthetic gas kind of highlights the process that's commonly used in any emissions reduction strategy in the corporate sector, which is to analyze the process and then ultimately engage all the stakeholders in the process to try and find a zero or reduced carbon alternative. So it starts in our practice with just looking at what we're doing. And so there's an obvious thing of reducing flow rates. We, we were taught to just turn up your oxygen, put your ISO on two, away you go, forget, forget about that and do your procedure. That's fine, but times have changed. And so you can immediately start being more careful with your flow rate. 
And the other thing that we've started to introduce is capnography. And now I know we probably should have had this a long, a long time earlier, but an anaesthetist tell us that this is essential. Um, I guess our, our little problem with capnography has been that the units have always been a bit fiddly and fluffy. And so the nursing team get a bit annoyed with it and then they don't bother using it. And consequently, uh, it falls off the radar. But where we've introduced that, reintroduced that, and that enables you to reduce the flow rate safely and know that the patient's circulation ventilation is adequate. So, so reducing flow rates is, is an obvious one. And then the other things that we've started to discover is use more CRIs for pain relief and, and turn your anaesthetic down. So that becomes another profit center. The nurses love it because the patients are having a much smoother recovery and we're managing our analgesia a lot better. Now, I guess we've gone from, from somewhat sloppy anesthesia to much more focused anesthesia. It's made us look at the process a lot more and deliver better patient outcomes, another profit center. And then we've moved to things like uh, metatomidine pre-meds, for example. And so that's enabled us to use much, much less uh, anesthetic gas. And particularly for short health procedures, we just do little top-ups of alfaxan to just run them on oxygen. So that's an easy win. And then local anesthetic, so local anesthetic for, for castrations. I thought it was, I used to think it was a bit of a gimmick, but now I can see there's huge benefits in doing that. And so there's also intravenous anesthesia and intramuscular anesthesia. Yeah. Uh, and so there's lots of options there to solve this. It just, there's a lot of retraining required um, and there needs to be a will to do it. But I love that because the, the app shot and you can decide which one do you put as the primary goal, but it's better medicine, better anesthetics. It's, it's safe. It's better patient outcomes, as you say. And it also happens to be more climate friendly. So you can choose, is your goal climate or is it for the patient? But either way, it, it's a win. And it's interesting. It's good to learn new stuff. Everybody loves learning new skills. It's, it's, uh, there's resistance to it, but, but you're right. The old 15 years ago or 10 years ago, it's literally just a patient's moving, crank up, by the, crank up the gas, and there's no thinking beyond that. Going, well, what else can I do? So it's really good. I love that. And this, you know, what I was getting back to before, you were talking about, about government regulation. Eventually, that's going to come into play. Uh, for example, I think in Scotland, they've banned desflurane anesthetic um, because it's really significant greenhouse gas. And so potentially down the track, there's going to be more and more government regulation uh, as community expectations ramp up. I wanted to give you a quick update on our specialist support space. If you haven't come across it before, we created a space where you can interact with a group of specialists to give you case support on those tricky case conundrums that you face in everyday practice. The space is housed on the same app where our subscribers get their show notes which is a super nifty tool where you can upload photos or videos or even chat live to the specialist if the case requires it. The idea with this is that you have a direct, guilt-free line of communication with somebody who can help you out with those cases that you can't refer or you don't want to refer, but you just need a little bit of extra brain power to help you make decisions or check your thinking. We started off the space with support in medicine and emergency and critical care, but in the last month, we added support in dermatology, veterinary oncology, as well as support specifically for those tricky diabetic cases. Our subscribers will have listened to the episode with Dr. Linda Fleeman on using basal insulin in your patients for a complete paradigm shift in how you manage your diabetic patients. But this has led to a lot of questions for Dr. Linda. So we decided to get her on the space so she can answer your questions directly. It is a paid space, but we've kept it as affordable as possible at about $15 a month. We can ask as many questions as you want and expect a same day turnaround time. We've put the link for the space in the show description wherever you're listening to this. So if you feel like you can use a little bit of extra help, go and check it out today. Okay, back to Jeremy. Okay, so anesthetic gases, were there other surprises, other needle movers 
that you didn't see as a, as a potential problem? Let, let's say things that were harmful to the climate that you didn't really have on your radar for a start. Yeah, certainly anesthetic gases was a big one. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, things like pet cremation, for example, is another significant component of our footprint and, you know, gas using for pet cremation. And so that was another eye opener. And then so doing a bit of research, you know, there are lower carbon alternatives. So aquamation is now available, widely used in America and is now available in some states in Australia. Um, What's aquamation? Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So um, the, the bodies are put into a stainless steel tank full of um, sodium hydroxide. So it's like caustic soda. Mm -hmm heated up to about, I don't know, 90 degrees. And that over a period of about 24 hours dissolves all the soft tissue into a kind of a soup uh, and you're left with the bones. Uh, and mindful of which is another thing I didn't realize is that with, with fire cremation, you've still got the bones left that then have to be ground up and that becomes the ashes. It doesn't all sort of form a, a neat pile of cigarette ashes in the middle of the crem cremator. There's bones left that are ground up. That's what you get. Oh, so with aquamation, you get the bones left and then they just get air dried and ground up and that's what you get back. So you get a little bit more back because they're not kind of as, as, as destroyed as they do in fire cremation. Then you've got this um, soup of sodium hydroxide, which is actually a very high protein soup and you can actually use that as fertilizer. Yeah, so, so there's an end product there as well. And there's, <laughs> there's an excellent video on, maybe it's on Vin of a, a vet practitioner in Outback US who does it in a barn and then she gets a pickup truck and she pours all this kind of clear syrupy liquid into this big tank and has a, a pipe at the back with holes drawn into it and drives around a paddock drilling this slurry <laughs> onto it. It's a crack of life. Fluffy, fluffy and mittens become, well, it's, it's natural. That's what happens yeah. to all of us. We end up in the back of the food chain again. So there we go. Yeah, and also I've heard of terramation as well, which I think is like a composting process. I don't know much about that one, but yeah, there's, 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 there's low carbon alternatives. And in talking, we've started to talk to our cremation supplier. Well, hold on, what are you guys doing to reduce your emissions? And they said, we well, actually, we are looking at things like hydrogen cremation and other alternatives. Once you start to look at it, and again, like our anesthetic acid, once you start to look at it, oh, actually there's this and this, and we can do this, and there's, there's opportunities out there. It just means a will and a goal to drive it, really. Yeah, so let's let's get to that, because I talked before, maybe we can pivot into the, the specific the climate care program with Vets for Climate Action, because I listened to all this, and I'm fascinated, but I'm fascinated and interested in a thousand things. And if I was a practice owner, Am I the best person to drive it? Who, how do you guys find, how do people implement this in a sensible way so that there is somebody who is taking steps every day, taking action to make these things happen? Yeah. So you really need management buy-in at the top to, to, to set it up really. Um, you know, without the support of management that you can't really just have a, a motivated individual within the practice who's frustrated because they don't have any resources. So, so you really need to get the practice owners on board. So this is something that you need to, to use in your, or, or set up in your practice. And really, I guess it's about getting back to that culture word. It's about setting up a culture of sustainability within your practice. And so uh, practice owners need to understand that, that, um, this new culture of sustainability needs to align with your other business strategies. So your standards of care, your budgets. Um, your marketing, your staff retention, all of that, it, it, it fits into all of those business strategies that you already have, but it needs to become a culture 
within the place because it's ongoing. It's not just, oh, we'll, we'll t- do this in one year and then that's done and we'll forget about yeah. it. It's it's like the those other programs like a hospital of excellence or a fear-free clinic or whatever. It's ongoing. And so you need that 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 cultural shift in your practice and your team to help keep driving things like recycling or you know, hassling the, the suppliers for, for more sustainable delivery options and those sorts of things. So so in terms of resources and by resources, time and money, how resource intensive is it to, to be a, a much more sustainable clinic? Yeah, look, so so the way the process works is that you nominate a climate champion within your practice and then they, they're the one who accesses the online modules. So we have six modules. Mm-hmm. And then so, and each of the modules follows through on that sort of change management principle of the why and then the how and then the repetition required to embed the change and then the measuring success and rewarding the team and then the, the, the rinse and repeat type um, process that you need to embed change. So all the modules gauge that process. In terms of time, ideally you'd have this person maybe doing one or two hours a week. So that could be like four hours a month or something like that. It does vary a little bit depending on what style of practice you get. And then some of the things would be done by uh, external organizations, for example, uh, say solar panels and batteries, LED lighting, that sort of thing. We can part of the program engages with an external nationwide company that specializes in energy audits and that sort of thing. So when you get to the energy efficiency module, you can say, right, I will we'll get these crowd in to see what they say. And typically you may need to invest a certain amount of money, but you'll more than get that back in, in savings over the time. Um, so there's, there's those sorts of issues. And then there's smaller expenses, or I shouldn't use expenses, investments, smaller investments that you can make, like, like changing the water filter on your tap. You can cut your water and use hand basin usage by 60% just by doing that. There's being more diligent with your recycling, for example, and nursing team came to us a few years ago and said, look, we need to get another landfill again. We're too full. And then we, that was at the time we were engaging and developing the climate care program. We said, hold on, let's, let's look into our recycling. And then all of a sudden we went down to three bins instead of four and saving a $50 a week at the time. So that almost pays for the, for the program in one, in one change. So- okay. Well, let's, let's start with numbers first to give people an idea. If somebody's listening to this and they're interested, backstep actually. So with the climate care program, so if somebody's listening to this going, yeah, I love the idea. I've been wanting to do this for five years, but I don't have the the time and the capacity to go and research all of this stuff. Yeah. So the climate care program, that's sort of a done for thing, or at least a, a handholding through this process. Is that correct? Uh, it really steps people through the process. And, and look, that was the, the I, I did a presentation at the ABA conference last year and we surveyed the audience and said, why, what's, what's holding you back? And most of them people said, I don't know where to start. That was the most common response. So, and, you know, when I got involved with this, I didn't even think of wall. I was thinking of solar panels and electricity, and that was it. And didn't realize that when you look at sustainability, there's a whole lot of other opponents to water, energy efficiency, wastes, microfiber, plastic pollution, anesthetic gases, et cetera, et cetera. And the UN def- definition of sustainability is is meeting the needs of, pres- of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. So basically not dumping waste for the next generation to deal with. So when you're doing something, am I legging this for the next generation to deal with is probably a really on the ground way of, of thinking about it. So, so, the, so there's, there's financial savings, absolutely. And they vary depending on how, how much you want to engage with it, but you'll definitely get your money back of the two and a half thousand dollars. You'll easily get that back. Is that the climate care program cost is two and a half thousand 
Yeah, that's for the first year. And then there'll be ongoing. We're building enhancements in it to include things like a carbon calculator. And so you can start practicing and, and reporting, measuring and reporting your carbon footprint. And that's particularly attractive to the corporates uh, because they're subject to, um, once you get over a certain number of employees, I think 200, you're required to, in the coming years, to start measuring and reporting your footprint. So it's going to become a necessity for some people initially and eventually probably for everybody. Yeah, it's not a, it will filter down, yes. So two, two and a half thousand, that sounds like an easy, easily retrievable amount by relatively minor savings. When you start talking about big changes like the, like solar or design changes and things like that, that's obviously a more significant investment. And, and the answer to this, I'm guessing will vary very much country to country. In, in Australia, is that spend retrievable? through savings, through electricity and that? Because it all depends on the feed-in rates and all that sort of stuff. Have you personally found, does the savings in electricity bills offset the investment you made to go solar? That's what they call a no-brainer, that one. Um, uh, solar panels last about 25 years. It takes you about five, four to five years to recoup your investment and then you, you get 20 years of free electricity. So, And the big thing in, like in general practice is we're doing most of our work in the daytime, so we're not feeding it in, we're using it. And so, so additionally in our practice now, two of the partners have got electric vehicles. And so we charge that up during the daytime. And for nine months of the year, we have this, because we've got so many solar panels, we've got a surplus of power that would have been fed into the grid. Well, we'll fill up our cars with that. And you can, you can charge an EV for 400 Ks for $5 on a six cents feed in tariff. So it's, um, you know, this, that's another benefit that, 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 um, we didn't factor in as well. So. Wow. Uh, yeah. So, and you can get finance to, to put in solar panels. It's just an, an obvious business decision um, to do that. Yeah. So, so beyond the, the ethical reasons and the set, well, it's not even ethical. It's the long-term survival of the species reason, uh, reasons to do this. There is actually short-term, it actually makes financial sense for the most part as well. So, so seeing as we are such short-term thinkers. <laughs> Look, it's absolutely about the business case, really. And we recognize that the changes are going to have to be made in in what is run as a business. And so if we can build the business case for sustainability within your clinic and the financial component of the business case is part of it, but it's also your marketing, your staff retention, attracting um, particularly the Gen Z and millennials, they're, they're looking for practices that are demonstrating these credits. And that's been our experience that the business case is quite compelling now as, as more and more new green technologies become available and there's a widespread expectation within the community that more needs to be done. And you see the the supermarkets advertising their net zero credentials. It's wide on television and billboards, et cetera. Now that the footballers, I noticed the football at our local um, football stadium was advertising at half time to help their net zero strategy by getting public transport to the football. So, you know, that they're bundling it up with their business case, but also the social and climate imperative of, of dealing with this. It sounds like, a, like another no-brainer. The whole thing sounds like, yeah, you should definitely do it. You guys talk to practice owners on the ground. What's the, you said time, time is the first thing, but since what's the biggest resistance you meet in, in starting this process and what's your rebuttal to it? Yeah, time is definitely the, the, the biggest thing because vet practice under a lot of time pressure and long vision and to then introduce a new program to the team is just like poking them in an eye, poking them in the eye when they've got so much else to do. So it's not such a good idea, but uh, your cost is a little bit, you know, we can easily demonstrate that, that you'll recoup the costs. And then I suppose it's about, about change. Most of the people that come to us 
already interested in wanting to do something and don't know where to start, that's probably the biggest thing. So there's that motivation there. They're interested. They say, yeah, I'll get back to you. They don't get back to us. We contact them. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing it. Yeah. But that's that's how decisions are made in, in practice, in my experience. We went through that. We were, One of our strategies was to, to go paperless. And so we looked at a, a paperless a hospital management system for anaesthetics and all that kind of, and hospital admissions and all that sort of thing. And so we saw a system. Yeah, that's great. They came out and they talked to us. Yeah, 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 we'll do it. We'll do it. More emails, yeah, yeah, we're onto it, we're onto it. No, no, six months later, we just rang up and said, let's go, this kind of thing. So I thought, well, that's been my experience of a great new program, which involved change. And I suspect that that's practitioners are going to have that same sort of approach. So we just got to keep persi- being persistent and eventually more and more will come on board and then we can get word of mouth. And and then um, and I think there'll be wider pressure from the community as, as the climate issues continue to escalate. And they will, it's inevitable. Yeah. And more and more people say, hey, yeah, well, well, hey, those guys are doing it. We, we better start doing it as well. I can't let you get away without telling me what paperless system you went to. Because I bet you people are listening to this going, oh, oh, which one? Which one works? Does it work? Do you like it? Uh, yeah, it's FedCheck, um, which integrates with our system. Yeah, it's an interesting process of change management. Uh, everyone thought, yeah, that's a good idea. Then we uh, get the system, so we had to buy more iPads. Then the Wi-Fi wasn't up to it, so we'd upgrade the Wi-Fi. And then <laughs> people got sick of tapping on screens. And why can't we just tick a box on the paper and... Um, but you know, we've also got had to put in a little shed in the backyard to store boxes of paper that no one ever reads for however it is five or six years. So that was so printing and that sort of thing. So so then people drifted back to paper, and then we keep having the team reading and and, and just that repetition to embed the new change. And now we we wouldn't ever go back to to paper. It's just so many extra benefits that you can add into that system. New drug, the calculators there, mm. client admissions are all streamlined, and Interestingly, our photocopier contractors come up for renewal and we were paying uh, $600 a month and they've looked at our copying and said, well, you really only need a $300 a month contract now to, to the amount of printing that you're doing. So, so just having a focus on, on less printing has is, is saved us a significant amount of money as well. So cool. So you said your system does client admission forms and everything digitally as well. That, that should that should be the way. It makes no sense not to do it for other reasons as well, just for efficiency reasons. Yeah. Interesting though that you think, great, we're paperless, so that's zero emissions. But the when we do our carbon audit now, we have to identify how much we've spent on online software. Um, and there is a carbon footprint for that as well because there was an interesting documentary on, on TV recently about the, the carbon cost of the cloud. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, in Ireland, there are these huge data storage factories that are consuming, I think, 15% of Ireland's electricity in data management. So all these photos and everything that we take and store in the cloud, it takes energy to store that. So that now feeds into your carbon. It's, it's small, but it feeds into your carbon calculation because these cloud systems do consume energy somewhere. So much smaller than paper? Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also, paper's got the other thing. You don't have the physical go paperless you don't have that physical issue of, of from a sustainability point of view and you're chopping down trees and making them into carrying them into your clinic and printing them getting ink and all the other things yeah much better okay jeremy is there anything else for the climate care pro- well other than the obvious question is how do people get in touch if somebody listens to this and they go yeah sign me up let's go how, how do they who, who do they contact yeah just go to our website vets for climate action 
and just looking at the climate care program and then you can have a look at, at the details there and, and register there really straightforward and and our team can and bits of climate action can help you from there with onboarding yeah. is there anything about the climate care program that i haven't asked you yet that sh- that you think should be underlined Look, there's lots of different components to it. One of the really cool things that, that's worked well in our practice is a bedding review. So when we were looking at water usage and the impact of what your water use is in the practice on the environment, the one of the issues that came up is microfiber plastic. So I don't know really much about that, but every time you wash a synthetic and you dry it, it's releasing microfiber plastic into the water and into the air. And this stuff is accumulating in the Antarctic in krill and all this sort of thing. And it's, it's everywhere. And there was a recent a TV show that the chaser used to be the chaser, but they do a environmental from a consumer point of view. And, and the guy took his fecal sample into a lab and had analyzed and found that there's microfiber plastic in just a routine fecal sample going through his guts. This, this stuff is everywhere. So the resolution to that was to get rid of synthetic bedding. Uh, and actually, it was really good because I don't know what your practice has been like and practices I've worked in, you go into the kennel area and there's piles of different shapes of blankets and towels and all that sort of thing that have been donated and left by pets that are euthanized, et cetera. And there's no sort of standard approach to making up a bedding. So what we decided to do was pull out anything that was synthetic. Uh, we stuck that in a box and sent it off to a company that specializes in recycling of this stuff. Yeah. 77 kilos we had of synthetic bedding to get rid of. Wow. And when we only have single size cotton towels that are donated, so your clients are always willing to donate bath towels for you. So single size cotton towels, and then we have two sizes of woolen blankets for throwovers to keep patients warm. And they're all secondhand, so it's a circular economy, and that's it. So it's much neater. It's, it's a good system. Uh, and then it's when we wash and dry these things, and there's less washing and drying because you're only using an appropriate size piece of material for the cage. You know, it's not releasing microfiber plastic. So yeah, that's just like one of the really cool things in the program. So plastic containing bedding, would that be the standard uh, standard vet beds that you get? The fluffy fluffy vet beds that's supposed to be not as absorbable. So pee seeps through it. That's that's plastic. Yeah. Mm. Everybody listening to this is going, oh shit. Oh shit. <laughs> so look, you know, in the scheme of things, you know, it's not going to make a huge difference, but it highlights the principle. And actually, it's a much better, the team like it because the bedding is so much more organized now. So apart from the environmental benefits, it's better for our systems in the hospital. And then once a year we'll go through and and what happens is that euthanasia patients will leave their bedding um, and so it accumulates again. Mm -hmm. And so then once a year we'll go through and so we'll have an annual audit and see if we need to get some more towels and and do our annual bedding review then. I'm assuming that those... Continent pads, absorbable pad type things are also plastic, not not so good for the environment because then you get caught in loops because then I go, okay, but if I just use a towel, then is that going to mean more washing? So versus an incontinence pad, I can just take it off the towel and chuck it in the bin versus a towel will have to be washed, which is detergent, which is water. And then where you start weighing up, is it a clear cut call on this one? Yeah, you said chuck it in the bin. So where's that going to go? That's your answer. I know. I, I appreciate. So that, that which is, I'm trying to figure out which is worse, more water usage and, and detergents and stuff, or, or how do you deal with that? Yeah, I mean that's a complex sort of calculation. But I guess we're trying to use less uh, and better. It's really what what the focus is. So less toxic washing detergents, and then minimise the amount of size of item that we're going to have to wash and reuse it. 
Yeah. So, um, yeah, I haven't actually done the calculation on the, the alternative, but we didn't even consider it. So, you know, it's disposable. Yeah. Bigger picture for vets and climate, vets for climate action. I did have, was it Ben Schuster, <laughs> the, one of the previous guys, it was about two, it was 2020. We had him on the podcast to talk about what's happening. Has anything shifted or changed for the society for vets and climate action in terms of strategy or what we're doing? I don't mean nitty gritty daily, daily details, but is there anything new or anything we should know about, about vets for climate action? Well, no, the main thing, our focus mainly at the moment is on, on getting the, the climate care program established. So we're going to have a launch coming up in May this year. Um, and then there's the ongoing advocacy work that we do. So really, you know, what we're trying to do is use this program to support the activities of the organization, to do more advocacy, to influence ultimately to get better policy, really, because if you can get policy change, you can, that's a huge driver of change in the community. So if the government directs that you've now got to do a carbon order, if you practice that, that gets a whole lot of people moving, mm. but they'll only do it if there's widespread support for that. And we've got 36 former chief Fenry officers as part of our organization. They know about policy development. They know how government, agreements of government work, and then we can use their resources to, to um, have input into policy. So that's uh, one of the other important things that we do is the advocacy work. So to structurally understand the strategy, really Vets for Climate Action is a is big picture stuff that you guys are doing with policy and advocacy, but to support that and to do good work with that, it's on the boots action is the climate care program, but that is also a way of, of funding the other work that gets done. Yeah, look, it's a social enterprise really. Um, so we're looking to use that to fund our other activities. <laughs> and the other, you know, if there's one sort of, word that you want to take away for for dealing with climate change it's collaboration i think is probably the biggest thing that we need to you need to appreciate so we our organization the found one of the founding members of the organization jeanette kessels is a real uh, force within the organization and she has been doing a lot of networking with international groups so there's uh, vet sustain in the uk there's ecovito in the uk and the U.S. is a bit slow to get on board, but they have actually formed a sustainability group with the Canadians. I can't quite remember the name at the moment, but been networking with international groups um, to try and share ideas and develop policy. For other resources, you you recently published an, an article, actually, a scientific article in is it Frontiers of Science? Front, tell us more about that, and and where can people go and find that and read that. <laughs> Yeah, okay. I was recently involved in a collaboration with uh, three other excellent veterinary professionals. So Karina Klupiak, Jane Bingloss, and Marion Marin. And so it's sort of the, the genesis of this came off the back of a course I did through Cambridge University about a year and a half ago on net zero for business. And the last module of the program said that you need to then go out. You had to, to put together a plan of what you're going to do next that will, that will create some sort of improvement in climate action in your sphere of influence. And so my plan was to, to write a paper on net zero, but having never written a paper before, I needed to connect with people who knew more about this and, uh, and connected up with three other great officials and they were keen. And so we worked on that and over a period of about, it took about six, a bit over six months. And first time I've done that, so it was a whole new process for me. But um, yeah, the outcome is a paper in Frontiers in Veterinary Science called The Path to Net Zero Carbon Emissions for Veterinary Practice. And it really is, is a business case for why you would want to implement a net zero strategy in your practice and then how to go about it. 
I'll put a link for that in the show description and the show notes as well. If anybody wants to read the business case for own interest or take it to your boss and say, here we go, boss. This is why we should do this. Exactly. That's what I want them to do. Great resource. All right. The little quick fire questions to wrap us up, Jeremy. The, the first thing is, are you a podcast listener? Yes, I do listen to a few podcasts. Yes. Yeah. Favorites? Um, what, what should be on my playlist? Well, I'm doing Australian politics and uh, there's one on the ABC called Matt Bevan, if you're listening. And he did a whole series on global leaders and like Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un and those kind of guys. So I think I'm really fascinated by the cool. politics and how these guys tick. Um, but the one I like on long road trips, and done a couple of long road trips last year with my son because he needed to get a, the hours up for his license. And there's a, one called The Wondery. Uh, it's a US-based one, American Scandal. And they, you know, over a period of four or five episodes, will look at a significant American social financial issues such as the Rockefellers or the Volkswagen emissions scandal or the Enron uh, and the Exxon Valdez and those sorts of things. So I find those sorts of things really fascinating and they present them really well. So there, there are a couple of ones that I've enjoyed, yeah. I should try that. I'm apolitical since moving to Australia. <laughs> No, no, not out of principle. I just find Australian politics very boring for the most part. <laughs> Coming from South Africa where politics is quite extreme. Here I'm like, ah, it sort of just takes care of itself. <laughs> so I should give those a try and see if I can get some enthusiasm going for, for Australian politics. Sounds great. The pass along question, Jeremy, where I get a previous guest to ask a question for my next guest. Sam Bowden asked, what do you consider the most important human trait to ensure success in business? Oh, I think integrity is really the, the key for me. Yeah, integrity is the most important thing, I think. You know, and that really encompasses trust, but also following through and delivering on what you purport that you are about. And so you need, obviously you need trust with your, your business partners, you need trust with your team, and you need trust with your clients and your suppliers. And you build that up over time and they get to know that you can be trusted, that this is how you go about things. And so I think really integrity would be the probably the biggest single thing I think you need to make business work. Can you cultivate integrity or do you have it or you don't? <laughs> yeah, look, I think you can learn it to some extent. And you now we all, I think growing up, fiddle with it at the edges in terms of telling fibs or whatever and realizing the consequences and you start to learn, oh, yeah, okay, I get caught out if I do that. So maybe that's not a good road to, to follow generally. And, and so again, back to your first thing about, um, bad decisions, but I'm saying taking risks. And I suppose, you know, you take a risk by telling a lie or, or, or cheating on someone or whatever, and then it comes back to bite you and you think, mm, okay, well, I had my time again, I wouldn't do that. So I won't, I'll learn from that moment and going forward, you realize that you need that, that integrity to, to be successful, really. Any, any books that have changed how you think about things or made a big impact on you in the last couple of years? Yeah, look, one of the ones that I've found really useful in terms of, particularly in dealing with the emotional response to climate change, because we're all frustrated people that are complete climate deniers, people that know about it, that don't do anything, people that are so puritanical and active that it becomes annoying because they're doing so much more than you and they make, make you feel bad. So there's all these different emotional responses out there in the communities. And how do we kind of make sense of that and then try and leverage those emotions to create change, really. And so the book I'm referring to is, is one by an Australian social researcher, Rebecca Huntley, How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way That Makes a Difference. And she's a social researcher and she 
looks at all the different emotional responses to climate change and how that can affect change. For example, fear is, is a really powerful emotion, but it's not a very lasting emotion. So people have the, the floodwaters or from an extreme weather event run through the house and, 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 and that creates a short-term strong emotion, but then it all drifts away and a couple of years roll on and then they forget about it. So there's not so, so lasting a motivation for change. And similarly, things like anger and that sort of thing are also not very long-lasting. But what she talks about as being more useful long-term emotions are things like um, hope and love. And when I say love, she means things like, say, love of a favourite holiday destination, love of your, of your grandchildren, love of your pet. And so that then feeds back into the, the, the strategy of the VFCA, which is people love their animals, the climate's important for the animal's health, they love wildlife okay, let's join the dots for those people and say, how can we leverage that emotion to get some long-term change? So she, she really writes, um, she's a journalist, so she writes in a really accessible fashion. Um, it's not a heavy textbook, it's just a really interesting read. And she then sort of gives you an understanding of how to deal with those people that, uh, that are climate deniers or whatever and how not let that get under your skin. Because if you're not a climate denier, that causes a strong emotional response in itself, in, in you as a, like, I, anger is definitely up there. <laughs> when you deal with somebody who's a flat out denier, I should definitely read that. I have a friend who, uh, it is a good friend and an old friend who is more on the denier side and I get unreasonably angry when we talk about it and then I don't know what to say. <laughs> so I should definitely read that. I feel like that book will be useful way beyond just talking about climate change, because there's many things, even in our profession, even with, um, with clinical stuff, those would be useful skills as to say, how do you, how do you pose something when you have a client or somebody like that, who has an inherently very different view to you? Have you found that useful in, in other scenarios? Yeah, look, it's, I guess it's things like the, um, the anger, for example, that, you know, that's something that we have to deal with in day to day in practice with clients that are getting angry for all sorts of reasons, but it's not a, a very rational response. So trying to sort of rationalize with someone in that situation is not usually very effective. And similarly with the, with your climate deniers, you know, they've got a whole lot of reasons which are perfectly valid for them as to why they're not engaging with the process and you know, using logic to try and change their mind. They're not going to work. So it's probably not worth bothering with them. Find a topic that you enjoy talking about and connect with them in some other way. And they're not necessarily bad people. And then try and focus on that 60 or 70% of people in the middle who want to do something, don't know where to start. That's kind of like where I have some energy. So. Yeah. Yeah. I heard Simon Sinek say once, I have to meet logic with logic and emotion with emotion, which I, I think was a really good, good saying. I like that. So your question, Jeremy, for my next guest. Yeah, so look, I'm going to be a little bit specific here and, and again, off the back of the paper that I've recently been involved in. So my question is that, you know, what can you do in your sphere of influence, particularly in your workplace, to encourage and support management to develop and enhance their sustainability and emissions reduction ambitions? That's a big one, but <laughs> so just, what, I want, what I want people to do is look at their workplace and say, what are we doing? Is something happening? Okay, management, are they, do they know about it? Are they doing something? Okay, how can I influence them? And then if they are doing something, can, can they do it better? It's a, it's a great question because, of course, I, when I ask, when these questions get posed in the podcast, I immediately ask it of myself. And I can immediately think of a bunch of things. Climate, specifically climate and sustainability-wise, that bother me when I'm at work. I'd never act on it. 
No, I know I'd never act on it, but I haven't made a concerted effort to go speak to management and say, hey, there's this thing. I think we can do this better. Um, so thanks. That's a great question. And hopefully, hopefully, hopefully the ultimate answer to the question is get management to sign up to the climate care program, <laughs> but small steps. I'd also like listeners of the podcast to then apply that in their circumstance. If, and that was the thing about the paper is that, that, you know, if we can get management buy-in, that's the most important stakeholder in the whole veterinary sector to actually affect change. If they're keen, they would devote the resources, the time, set the targets, the, the ambitions, the culture, everything, uh, if we can get management buy-in. So I think that's what I would like people to have a go at. Great. Last question, Jeremy, is you, you have an opportunity to address all of the new graduates, the veterinary new grads of, should we do last year's cohort, the 2023 cohort? You've got a couple of minutes to give them just one little message. What would you say to them? Well, first of all, I'd say that um, vet science is a fabulous career and a fabulous degree to have. It's got so many options. You can work uh, city, you can work rural, you can work part-time, full-time, you can be specialty practice, you can work international, uh, you can work in government, large corporations, that sort of thing. So, so it's an extremely versatile degree. And so if you're not finding your initial steps, don't find what you want. You know, there's lots of other options out there. So First of all, that. And then this, the other thing, I think, uh, is that uh, obviously climate change is here to stay. It, it will get worse. The science is clear. And there's a lot of climate anxiety out there amongst particularly the younger generation. And I understand that. But I think, you know, there are other existential threats out there and there have been, and, and humanity has been dealing with you know, the threat of nuclear war, the pandemics, impending threat of AI and what that might do. So there are all these issues out there. And I think probably climate change to some extent needs to be compartmentalized because if you think too hard about it like that, it could be destructive to your mindset. But what I think is, uh, is the way to approach it is to look at what you can do, or sort of backtrack a bit. You need to worry about the things that you can change. And things that you can't change, you don't want to worry too much about them because you can't do anything about it. Worry about the things you can change. The things you can change is your own sphere of influence. So collaborating with others to, to do more on dealing with climate change, I think is really, uh, and that's a, uh, a lifelong continuing education in our in, in vet practice. Uh, it's a lifelong commitment to setting yourself some, some small goals and building on that year on year and collaborating and influencing those around you to support your actions. And so at least then you can feel that oh, I'm doing, I've, you know, I've done the best I can <clears throat> and uh, the rest is beyond my control. Yeah. So the other thing I, I mentioned is there was a, a quote from a journalist, I can't remember now, but we still live life day to day, week to week, month to month. And life will go on and we'll still do most of the things we like, but more and more, there's going to be climate impacts creeping in and it's somehow reassuring to know that, you know, I'm continually working on my plan. And I guess if you look at the climate science, the next seven years is really crucial to, to shifting the dialogue. What we can do in the next seven years will be the most useful emissions reduction in history, really. That's really where the challenge is. It's a good message because it can, and I've experienced that personally. As you say, once you start thinking about it, it can almost be paralyzing. If you think about it long-term, yes, that, that message of, I, I have a saying that I use for myself. I, I can't even remember where I got it from, but do what, do what you can with what you have, where you are. That's the end all you can do. And, and, and the, I think it's a relevant message for the, the younger generation of vets, the new grads, because they are going to be the ones that that are going to deal with this and hopefully can move the needle on it by, by insisting on change. And they seem to be quite happy to 
not be happy with the status quo of how we've treated the planet. So for them to to say, look, no, we, because they, they're going into the practices not as the practice leaders, but they can say, look, no, I, I, we insist that we want to work in a sustainable practice. And here's a couple of ways that we can help you do that. I hope that's the, the message that we get from this. Yeah, I think you, I mean, you've, you've got to have you've got to have hope and be positive, and so you've got to look at how uh, you can shape that into your approach to life. And um, there's lots and lots of opportunities in the climate space opening up as you know new technologies. It's not all about giving something up; mm. it's about grabbing your opportunities and 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 doing things that fit with a larger narrative, which is emissions reduction, really. Okay. So, so you could become a specialist in low carbon anesthesia, for example, and go around and teach practices how to do this and save money and 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 help their emissions reduction strategy. So, then, you know, there's an opportunity that you wouldn't have thought of five years ago. That's very cool, Jeremy. Thank you so so much for your time and sharing what you've learned and sharing a pathway forward. Uh, and thank you for doing the work, for putting your hand up and making it happen. And I hope the next chapter of your, of your career is I, not. I hope I'm certain it will be super impactful. So, thank you very much. Thanks, you. Pleasure. Before you disappear, I wanted to tell you about our new weekly newsletter. I speak to so many interesting people and learn so many new things while making the podcast. So I thought I'd create a little summary each week of the stuff that stood out for me. We call it the VetVault 321 and it consists of, firstly, three clinical pearls. These are three things that I've taken away from the clinical podcast episodes. My light bulb moments, the penny dropping, any new facts, and the stuff that we need to know to make all the other pieces fit. Then, two other things. These could be quotes, links, movies, books, a podcast highlight, anything that I've come across outside of clinical vetting that I think you might find interesting. And then, one thing to think about. I'll share something that I'm pondering, usually based on something that I've read or heard, but sometimes it'll be just my own musings or rants. The goal of this format is that you can spend just two to three minutes on the clinical stuff and move right along if that's all that you're after. But if you're looking for content that is more nourishing than cat videos or doom scrolling, then our two other things should send you in the right direction. And then something extra for when you feel like a slightly longer read. If you'd like to get these in your inbox each week, then subscribe by following the newsletter link in the show description wherever you're listening to this. It's free, I think it's useful, it's fun, and it's easy to unsubscribe if it's not for you. Okay, I'll see you next time.